this says something about how we use the Bible, right? We we tend to use the Bible as a rule book. Um, and, you know, can we find something? Can we find a law about that? Can we find a rule about that? So we, we look in Paul for a couple of places where he says something about women. You know, when women prophesy, they have to have their head covered. Or in Timothy, I do not permit a woman to teach. Oh, okay, there we've got, there we've got the rules. But we ignore the fact that that this whole book is actually a narrative. Even the laws are rooted in story. So even, you know, the beginning of the Ten Commandments, if you grew up like I did hearing it every week, you know that, you know, I'm the Lord your God who led you out of the house of a land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods. Even the Ten Commandments are rooted in a story, a narrative of who God is. So when we read Paul, we can't just look at what he said, but we have to look at the, the narrative in which his words occur. What is happening, everyone? Happy whatever day it is that you downloaded this. I'm glad that you're here. I'm Seth. This is the Can I Say This at Church podcast. And it's 2020. I feel like I skipped that in January. It's insane. I don't know exactly when this episode will come out, but this is either like the last week of January or the first couple weeks of February, and it is flying by. I don't even know what's happening right now. So if you, for some reason, have gotten anything out of this free podcast, I want to make an appeal to supporting the show. You can do that one of three ways. The most helpful would be to just just head over to the website for the show or click down on the show notes. Consider supporting the show uh, there are, f- oh, well, as of recording this, 50 people there, 51, somewhere in that range. And I would love to grow that number. I have massive dreams for the show. One of the things that I wanted to try to do this year, which just isn't going to work, is a live version of the show. But I realized it's just not feasible at the moment. But I really, really want it to be. But that's going to require travel and a few other things. And uh, that's only going to be made possible by some of you listening, you know, pitching in literally a dollar a month or whatever it is that you can do. And uh, I will say thank you up front for that. So uh, if you for some reason can't do that, rate, review, tell your friends, share the show. It is a blast to get random emails from people that say, you know, hey, I found your show or or they say, hey, you know, I found the show and this helped or that helped or I was able to talk about this with some friends because of the conversations that are happening here. And so rating and reviewing definitely and sharing is a great way to also help out the show. Last year, early fall, I was given a book from um, Sylvia Keysmat and Brian Walsh on disarming Romans. And by Romans, I don't mean the people. I don't mean the country. I mean the book of Romans. So much of what churches, at least here in the West, preach on, especially in the, like, the Protestant version of church that many call home, and that many used to call home. So much of what we argue about, bicker about, and throw stones at people with are the words of Paul, especially the Romans' words, the words that he wrote to the church there. And it was an honor to talk with Sylvia and with Brian about that. I, As I edited this back down, I waited a few, a couple months, I think, actually, before I started editing it, and I busted out laughing. I probably woke up my kids. Um, there's, there's a part in here where... Brian interrupts her, and I don't want to bury it. I don't want to spoil it, but I got a kick out of it. I got a kick out of it then. I got a kick out of it as well, editing it. And so 
This is a very deep conversation, and their book is extremely deep and extremely worthwhile. And so I hope that you enjoy this conversation about disarming the book of Romans, taking away its ammunition, and maybe, maybe reframing the way that we should think about it for the church tomorrow. Let's roll. Sylvia Keysmat and Brian Walsh, welcome to the Can I Say This at Church podcast. Based on some feedback from my wife, I recently did not say who I was, so I'm Seth. Um, and so there was a confusion of who was who as the conversation went on a little bit into the conversation. So I'm going to try to remedy that on the fly because I was told that, I think, on Monday. So welcome to the show. I'm glad you're here and I'm thankful for your patience getting here. Okay. Good to be here. I always like to start with the same question uh, because it's extremely open-ended and you can take it wherever you want. But briefly, very briefly, Kenneth, where do each of you come from as you approach faith? What's kind of a little bit of what makes you, you? Huh. Well, I, I come to Christian faith as a convert. I was converted when I was 16 years old through an inner city mission in downtown Toronto. Uh, so for me, uh, the Jesus that I came to to follow uh, through that that ministry and also through reading the Gospel of John. In fact, I, I read the Gospel of John one night in one sitting, and at the end of that sitting, uh, I prayed the first prayer ever in my life, which was, God, if you're there, I want to know. Mm. And uh, in the morning, something had happened, and and I knew. So, so that the the following of of Jesus is is. Uh, is both deeply connected to uh, life on the street and and urban realities and and life in a world of turmoil. This was 1969, and my first uh, spiritual crisis uh, relates really well to your podcast. Can I say this in church? Because mm. I, I went I went to church uh, about a two or three weeks after my conversion because people told me that's what Christians do, <laughs> and and I couldn't figure out what. Uh, what they were talking about, because the Jesus that they were talking about didn't seem to relate to the Jesus of both my experience and, and my reading of scripture. So I, I kind of think that I've been trying to resolve that for the last 50 years. Mm. What's one of the questions they wouldn't let you say? Or you felt um, you felt tepid, intrepid? I don't know what the word is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it 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 wasn't so much that, that, that there was that, that I didn't think I could say things. It was that they weren't talking about things that seemed to relate to me. I, I mean, the very first sermon I heard was on stewardship. Mm. And I don't know why as a 16 year old kid before the environmental movement had really taken off and the word stewardship came to have certain kinds of meaning. Uh, I don't know why, but for some reason, when the topic was announced stewardship, I thought uh, that that would have something to do with economic justice. And of course it didn't. <laughs> it was yeah. about giving money to the church. It was about the church budget. And, yeah, <laughs> that's right. And, and so, so that, that was just sort of like, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I know I follow Jesus and I know these are followers of Jesus. So that means they're my family. Um, but I'm not feeling part of the family. And I grew up, uh, completely differently. So I grew up in the Christian reformed church, 
um, with a heavy emphasis on the Bible, but not um, not very evangelical at that time. It is more now. Um, and at the age of 12, felt that God had called me to uh, to the ministry, actually to preaching, um, which you couldn't do if you were a female in the Christian Reformed Church at that point. So I found myself eventually in the Anglican Church. I didn't go to seminary because I couldn't see a future in that and became a biblical scholar instead. And ironically, what that call was when I was 12 was I really wanted to share the story of Jesus. I wanted to tell people about the Bible mm. and explain it to people. And that's what I do. That's, uh, that is the calling I fulfill. And of course, now I also preach. So <laughs> that's a nice side benefit. <laughs> but, uh, you know, over the years, um, thinking about how that story, uh, how the biblical story and the story of Jesus relates to, you know, all parts of our lives, what it means for every decision we make. That's that's sort of what I've been spending my time struggling with and trying to help other people struggle with. I don't know much about the denomination. Would they let you preach now if it was if you reset oh. the clock? Yes, they would. They would let me preach now. So I and I have preached quite a bit in the Christian Reformed Church nice. as as well. In fact, I kind of straddle both worlds a little bit. I We do a lot of speaking in the CRC, but then also in the Anglican Church, which is our, our church home. Brian, you preach as well currently, right? Or I feel like you did or do one or the other. Yes, yes. Yeah. I I, uh, uh, I, I preach in our, in our own parish, but I also pastor a community at the University of Toronto called Wine Before Breakfast. Hmm. <laughs> so, uh, I'm, a, I'm a Christian Reformed. This is a funny thing. I'm a Christian Reformed campus minister. Uh, though I am an Anglican, and I've been a Christian Reformed campus minister for almost 25 years now. Uh, and so we we began a worship community, actually, uh, one week after 9-11, mm-hmm. September 18th, 2001. And uh, that community is called Wine for Breakfast, and I pastor that community, and, uh, and I preach, though I don't preach the majority of the time. I think it's really important that we raise up uh, yeah. people to, to open the word uh, within the community. Uh, that name, Wine Before Breakfast, reminds me of a picture that I literally saw this morning that I saw, I believe, from a friend of mine from Canada, although I'm not certain where he lives because it's a it's a Native American word and I'm going to say it wrong or a Native Indigenous word. or what are, I've already said it wrong. It's too many letters. <laughs> but it said something to the effect of my church has a practice of allowing people to make their own bread as they bring, like the members make the bread as they do communion. Uh-huh. Yeah. He's like, but I just want to be clear. I'm tired of whole wheat. I'm really tired of it. And, he's, and then someone else commented, yeah, but remember when the pastor got mad when someone put raisins in the bread and they did it as a sarcastic joke because raisins are, what you know, the derivative of wine. And so really, I'm just yeah. trying to do a twofer, but apparently nobody was having it. And I belly laughed. I belly laughed so hard. So, so hard. Because it didn't hit me at first. I was like, oh, clever, clever. Somebody got me. So you have written a book and a rather large one at, at that. Um, and I will say, I, I, I struggled reading through Romans because the way that I have read it historically, even up until recently, um, was with a different lens than the way that y'all approach it. And so the name of your book is Romans Disarmed. What does that mean? How, is, how has Romans even been armed to begin with? Well, uh, there's a, there's a double entendre, that's French, uh, for double meaning. Just <laughs> I, I was with I, I, we're, we're from a uh, bilingual country. I just thought I'd share that with you. <laughs> so there's, there's a double entendre uh, in, in the, the title. Uh, and, and the first is the, the, 
the epistle to the Romans has been armed. It's been used as a weapon. Uh, and it's been used as a, as a weapon uh, at least since the uh, the Reformation and and probably before, so that that it becomes a text that is used as as a judge of orthodoxy. It's used as a weapon against other Christians, uh, and so there's a sense of of weariness uh, uh, amongst so many. Uh, uh, with this this letter, uh, you, you come to it and you think, oh, my goodness, who is going to get hit over the head with this one this time? Yes. Uh, there's, the, the, of course, the Romans road way of reading it, which is a, a couple of proof texts uh, that uh, become uh, the path of salvation. And, and that itself uh, can be used in, uh, in what seems to us to be rather abusive ways uh, towards non-Christians. So there's that arming that we think, no, we have to find a reading which disarms that reading. Mm. Uh, why? Not, not because we're liberals and we don't like to beat up on people, but, but because uh, it's a fundamental misreading of the text. The text is all about bringing a community that is already at enmity with each other, bringing that community together. So how on earth can it be appropriately used to continue to split up communities? So that's the first sense of disarming. The second sense is we think that uh, Paul's letter to the Romans disarms the empire. It subverts the empire. So there's that second meaning to, to, to what we mean uh, by Romans disarmed. So reading, reading the letter in the context of its first century uh, imperial world, and then overhearing that speaking in the context of the 21st century imperial reality. So double meaning of disarmed. You focused on two things there I want to zero in. When you say community, so for Paul, that would be the, 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 Jew, uh, yeah, the Jew and Gentile community there in, in the church in Rome and how they're having some issues, correct? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and, and it's, um, I mean, that community has been been shaped by recent political events in in Rome. So, you know, in the year in the year 49 under the emperor Claudius, a lot of the Jews were expelled from Rome, uh, including Prisca and Aquila, who we meet in the book of Acts, who are now back in Rome because Paul mentions them at the end of of Romans 16. So you had a church where all of the Jewish leadership had to leave. And all of those who were able to ground the story of Jesus in Israel scriptures um, weren't there. They were gone. And you have a community that's made up largely now of, of Gentile Christians who probably want to keep their head down about following a Jewish Messiah, right? Mm -hmm. They don't want to emphasize a connection with Judaism because then they themselves can become the kind of scapegoat that that the Jews were. So after a while, Claudius dies and the Jews are allowed to return to Rome. And that's probably when Prisca and Aquila came back. And um, and probably a bunch of the others that Paul mentions in Romans 16, who he calls his kin um, or his relatives, it's sometimes translated, but that's, you know, fellow Jews. Um, they would have come back to Rome, but now Jews have for all these years been a scapegoat right? They're the people who everybody is suspicious of mm -hmm. and doesn't want to return. Kind of like another 
ethnic group that you might know from your own <laughs> country, right? We, <laughs> yeah. we do that, right? You, well, there's you multiple scapegoat. ethnic groups, but yes. That's that's true. There's <laughs> there's a few. I, I'm, I, I was at, in San Diego at the border last week, so I have <laughs> a particular picture in my mind. Yep. So, so when those Jews came back, there were some tensions there. Probably some in, in the Christian community wanted to welcome them with open arms, but there were probably a significant group of people who didn't wanted to say, you know what, like we can involve with these folks, we're going to get in trouble and we don't, we don't want to be, we don't want to be on the wrong side of Nero. <laughs> That's not a good place to right. be. So that created tensions in the community, but then there's also just the tensions that come about when people of different socioeconomic groups get together. So you have people who are very, very poor, people who are slaves and the tensions that come about from pe- with people from different ethnic backgrounds. So, you know, is it okay to eat meat? Well, Gentiles think it's fine to eat meat that's been offered to idols. All meat in the ancient world was probably slaughtered in a temple in some mm-hmm. form. So most meat had been offered to idols at some point, whether you knew it or not. And so, you know, Gentiles think, well, that's fine. That's how you get meat. That's the butcher shop. And Jews are stepping back and saying, no, no, we, we don't want to eat that. That's not, uh, that's not kosher. Literally. That's yeah. not, uh, that's not food. We're, we're, we're not comfortable eating imperial food. And so, so those kinds of tensions were in the community. And we know that from, from Romans 14 and 15. So Paul, and we, and we can also discern, if you look at, at uh, Romans 16, there's a long list of people Paul's writing the letter to. And also, there's a sense that there's some groups. There's a house that meets in a church that meets in the home uh, of Prisca and Aquila, probably met in a workshop. Um, there's probably a, a Jewish group, which Paul calls the saints. Uh, there's there's other groups. There's groups of slaves that meet in various households. They would have been scattered throughout the city, those, those groups of Christians, and only came together occasionally. So they themselves would have had different ways of being Christian together. And Paul's trying to negotiate that as as well. Yeah. So it's a, a community that, for various reasons, has some fragmentation. In so, it. so here's an interesting thing that I just thought of, and I don't know if this is right or not, because it's not in the book. <laughs> uh, it, it's clear that this is a community uh, with serious divisions. There's uh, ethnic division. There's religious division. There's socioeconomic division. Curiously enough, there doesn't appear to be a gender division. Hmm. Curiously enough, when we read Romans 16, uh, there are more women referred to than men. And uh, and there does, there's no hint that there's a problem within the community on that issue. That's hmm. very curious to me. Hmm. I don't remember directly reading this, but it might have been in there. How do we hold that when we use mostly Paul's text when we keep women out of any part of that community today? Not my church specifically, but so, so many, as well as so many other ministers. So if there's not that division there, and so I guess we're both riffing now. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. How do we, how do we hold that? We, we, we don't. <laughs> Let's start with, we, we, we don't. Oh, Sylvia's good. Never mind. A man just started to answer a man's question about women. I'll shut up. Well, I mean, that's really, this says something about how we use the Bible, right? We, we tend to use the Bible as a rule book. Um, and you know, can we find something, can we find a law about that? Can we find a rule about that? So we, we look 
in Paul for a couple of places where he says something about women. You know, when women prophesy, they have to have their head covered. Or in Timothy, I do not permit a woman to teach. Oh, okay, there we've got, there we've got the rules. But we ignore the fact that that this whole book is actually a narrative. Even the laws are rooted in story. So even, you know, the beginning of the Ten Commandments, if you grew up like I did hearing it every week, you know that, you know, I'm the Lord your God who led you out of the house of uh, land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods. Even the Ten Commandments are rooted in a story, a narrative of who mm-hmm. God is. So when we read Paul, we can't just look at what he said, but we have to look at the, the narrative in which his words occur and and the clues that we have in the narrative. And well, if you read Romans 16, it's clear that Phoebe has brought the letter. Mm-hmm. So and, she, and that meant she probably read it because the person who carried the letter is the person who read it to the community because they would have been there when Paul wrote it and would have known probably had talked about it with Paul, known what he was writing. Um, It's also clear that Paul sends greetings to the church that meets in the house of Prisca and Aquila. Very unusual for a woman's name to come before a man's name in the ancient world when you said who they were. Mm. That suggests that Priscilla, Prisca, was more important in that relationship. And we we have that same order in Acts too, um, and was probably the leader in that, the one with authority in that household. So, well, that's kind of interesting. Um, and then he refers to Junia, who's an apostle. For a long time, that that verse was translated, her name was translated as Junius, mm. um, because it was thought a woman couldn't be an apostle. I'm sure that was an accident, um, air quote accident. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, especially since the word Junius doesn't occur in the ancient world, and the word Junia is very common. Mm. So <laughs> that's kind of interesting. <laughs> Um, so we have an apostle and then he talks about other women who've worked hard with him, Mary and others in other epistles. He refers to women like in, in Philippians, uh, there's, I think four women listed who have worked with him. So, um, and then, and in Corinthians, so there's, it's very interesting that, uh, we ignore all those texts that actually talk about the women doing things with Paul in favor of these other two texts that probably then had a contextual, uh, you know, a context that gave rise to what Paul said there. And then we need to discern what that context is. So, um, you know, the way we hold that is actually not reading the Bible as if it's a manual, right? Mm -hmm. You know, as if it's a car manual telling you how to, here's how you put it in reverse, you know, here's how you act in the church. Mm -hmm. That's not, that's not what it's, what it's written for. I I couldn't get him to give me a direct answer, but when I talked with Tom Wright, gosh, it's been like a year and a half ago, he said something very similar uh, when we were talking about this section of Paul's writings. And then, Mm -hmm. and then he just wanted to move on. And so I let him, uh, because I just did. Um, I want to come back to gender, uh, because you write about it. Never allow Tom Wright to move on. Once you've got him on something, you push him and push him and push him. Just, just saying. Well, to be fair, I when he had said yes, I'd done like 20 of these and I had no back catalog, so really no legs to stand on. And I was like, I get to talk to Tom Wright. And so if I have him back, I'm, I'm, I would just probably have to ask him. I probably will. But there was a bit of trepidation on my part, I think, of, okay. of um, this man that wrote so many books on that shelf right over there is literally talking to me. This is exciting. It was, for me, it would be like meeting like LeBron James, you know, kind of thing. Um, yeah, a little, 
For me, it'd be like meeting Wendell Berry. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> what meeting Tom? No, that oh. that's higher than meeting Tom. <laughs> oh, okay. I I did my doctoral work with Tom Wright, and Brian's known him for many many years as a friend. So, so I have a question that is a derivative of something that you say in the book, um, and and because I like sarcasm, I would like to know what is y'all's issue with cell phones? Because you talk about having a problem with cell phones, which I find odd because we're talking on, uh, at least I'm on a MacBook. I don't know what you're on, but so, so what's the problem with, with cell phones in relation to Romans? Okay. So I'm, I'm also on a, on a MacBook. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, we try to articulate this in the, in the book, there's a whole bunch of problems with cell phones that, that where we talk about cell phones is the chapter where we're talking about um, Paul's uh, vision for the restoration of creation and the healing of creation. Um, there's There's been a lot of work done on uh, the environmental costs of cell phones. Mm-hmm. Um, so just the, the materials that, you know, the metals that are in the phones are mined in very unsustainable ways. There's uh, a lot, there's child labor used yeah. in mining those metals. So there's an issue of justice and an issue of an environmental justice in relation to cell phones. I realize that those things also apply to the MacBook that I'm currently speaking <laughs> to you on. Um, uh, but the other thing about cell phones is the incredible social cost of them, right? I mean, um, more and more, when we started the book, there weren't that many studies about this. And as we wrote, more and more studies came out linking um, cell phone use to increased depression amongst teenagers. Studies talking about how it's not actually just teenagers. There's an addiction that happens mm-hmm. with adults and teenagers with, you know, the dopamine that you, the dopamine hit that you get when you're on a cell phone and you, you get a, uh, a notification. There's studies about how how they distract us from so many things. And then there's just the things that we use cell phones for that we can look around and see socially in terms of, I mean, people are looking down on the streets. Uh So before, I mean, I I think that actually that this, this one is huge. You know, it used to be if you were walking, even in a city, even in Toronto um, from the subway to your house, you are passing gardens, you are passing parks, you're looking at people, you're looking at things. Now you're still looking at a screen often or talking on, on, the, on the phone. And that creates this dis- disconnection to the world uh, around you. So there's the way that cell phones feed into that. I don't even need to talk about the whole sexting thing mm-hmm. and the inappropriate things that we look at on cell phones that happens uh, too, um, and and then there's the the other end of the environmental piece. What happens when we're done with cell phones, right? Um, what kind of contamination, toxic toxicity is going back into the ground yeah. when we're finished? So there's there's a whole it's a whole package as to what it's doing to us personally, as a culture, environmentally. All of that. And interestingly enough, um, you know, recent biblical studies have, have uh, shown that um, that the idols they talk about, you know, when you talk about idolatry in the Old Testament, often they were very small, little three to four inch statues made of metal that fit in your pocket. Hmm. So you could carry them around as kind of a comforting thing. Huh. 
the parallel on having something that you trust in your pocket. So that get rid you of your car keys. Around. Get rid of the car keys. <laughs> get rid of the car keys. That's, all my trust is in the car keys. If you had seen our cars, you would not <laughs> believe that to be true. Well, I will say I find it comforting. I, I make the joke um, just to segue out of that. But um, yeah, I, I wanted to touch on that. But I often... Like Pat, if, if I can't find my phone, I'm usually fine with it. Although mm-hmm. I only have notifications turned on for text messages and phone calls, I get no other notifications, which actually causes its own problem. Because then when I open up Facebook or email or something like that, it's overwhelming. There's like 800 unhandled things right. that I don't know how to triage. But during the day, it's really nice not to be bothered, except for something that's going to result in an actual voice or something derivative of voice and it's almost always just my wife my my call log and text log is pretty much just my wife um so that works well i want to circle back to gender if we can. Um, And so recently I had this conversation in an email with my father because I can't do it on the phone very well. As I started talking on my views on homosexuality and then he started quoting some, some Romans to me. What do we do is, so when we, when we talk about Romans as proof texting, as you did earlier, how have we gotten there? Like what would, what do we need to do with that as we talk about gender? Well, as we talk about gender, um, I'm not sure exactly why when I this say is. when I say gender, I mean sexuality, because people will okay. will, will okay. they lump all that into the same thing. Um, okay. Yeah, so we're talking about basically the clobber passages, but Romans always a big one, um, as right. well as okay. a, as well as a few others. Yeah. Okay. Be, uh, I I question what you meant by gender there, because of course beyond the uh, the traditional kinds of questions that we've been struggling with around uh, lesbian gay relationships. Uh, we are now in a situation where there are bigger questions than sexual orientation, and, th- and that is gender identity questions. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, Romans uh, is of no help in that whatsoever, right. <laughs> and nor, nor is our book. We, we don't really talk about those issues. But we do talk about the question of, of homosexuality because Romans uh, 1 has indeed been such a clobber text. Uh, as you know, since you have the book, we, we wait until the second last chapter before addressing mm-hmm. uh, questions of sexuality, uh, knowing full well that some folks are going to read that first. Uh, but we, we want to contextualize what we had to say about uh, homosexuality in Romans 1 within the context of a, of a larger reading of the epistle. Yeah. Right? So uh, our, our approach to, uh, to Romans 1, and, and we, we attempt to do that by means of a dialogue and the, with, uh, with an imagined uh, interlocutor who, who shows up in this book, is we basically want, want to say, let me put it this way. There are about four possible ways of reading Romans in terms of homosexuality. One would be your dad's way. Here it says, homosexuality is wrong. Paul says it. That's it. We're done. Yeah. That's option one. Option two is, yep, Paul says that and uh, times have changed and we disagree. That That's option two, right? Option three would be to say what Paul is talking about isn't what we're talking about. So then you 
interpret what he has to say there in terms of what is the sexual cultural context of the Roman Empire. What is the nature of the idolatry of the Roman Empire, and what is the nature of the sexuality that becomes dominant within that idolatrous context, and that that we think Paul is attacking? Is he attacking uh, what we would understand to be faithful same-sex relationships, uh, like same-sex marriage? And our answer is no. He's not talking about that because it didn't exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, even the f- examples that kind of exist that, that our friend Tom Wright will refer to, uh, such as Nero's two homosexual uh, marriages, they don't count. They don't count, A, because they happened after Paul wrote, so Paul <laughs> didn't know about them, But uh, which is an interesting problem. But, but secondly, they don't count because they're not anything like faithful, monogamous homosexual relationships. They are parodies. Of, of a certain kind of, of abusive and over-the-top sexuality. When we look at the sexuality of the empire, we see a sexuality that is violent, that is unjust, that, that is, is, uh, is set in power relationships that are exploitive. Is Paul against that? Yes, he's against that. Now, before I go to the next point, did you want to add something to that, Sylvia? Sure. I mean, I think that when Paul talks in those, those verses about um, first, you know, women, women exchanging um, unnatural acts Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, you know, engaging in unnatural acts and men engaging in unnatural acts with other men. um, There would have been, well, two things. One, um, it doesn't say actually that women were engaging in unnatural acts with women. And in fact, the early church fathers, when they read those verses, interpreted it to mean women engaging in unnatural sexual acts with men. So, you know, in the ancient world, sex is about power mm-hmm. and men are to be dominant. Sex is still about round, about power in most of the world today. But men were to be dominant and women to, were to be submissive. If those roles were flipped, that was considered unnatural. And so the church fathers interpreted this text to mean that women were taking some kind of a dominant role in sex with, with men. Mm. The other thing is, is that in talking about a sexuality where these men received due penalty for their error, uh, for the things that they were doing, these are people who had seen what had been happening in the imperial house. They had seen Caligula engaging in abusive sexuality, raping both men and women. They had seen Nero, who used to wander the streets and rape whoever he came across um, with a security detail to get him out of trouble if Mm -hmm. if anything happened to him. Um, They had seen this kind of over-the-top sexuality in the imperial house. So Paul is already engaging in these verses in a critique of the empire. He's, He's critiquing idolatry, the worship of images. This follows in terms of that kind of abusive sexuality. And people would have seen that in their own households where masters used their slaves, both male and female, for sex. So this has a referent in a certain kind of violent and abusive sexuality that people would have seen all around them. And that had nothing to do with a committed monogamous same-sex relationship we're talking about today. Yeah. Okay. But I think Brian has his fourth point okay. to deal with here. <laughs> Just to riff a little bit more on, on that. So if we're going to read Romans 1 
And we're going to read it in the context of empire, and especially in the context of the sexuality that happens at the top of empire. Then, you know, maybe we should be reading Romans 1 in light of the sexuality and sexual practices of the President of the United States. Hmm. Romans 1 as critique of Donald Trump and, and, and that kind of sexuality at the highest level. That's where Romans needs to come to the Me Too, Me Too movement. Hmm. And Too comes to the church. And Me Too has to now come, not just to Hollywood, but to the, to the Oval Office. Yeah. So I'm sorry, I just had to put that out there. <laughs> no. Uh, so that's the riff or that's the fourth point? That's the riff. Okay. The fourth point. <laughs> the fourth point is exegetical. We have to ask ourselves, what is Paul talking about here? Because the context, and I'm just going to read, begins in 118. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodly ungodliness and wickedness. And the word wickedness there would actually injustice. Oh, things fall apart. Yeah, I was grabbing my Bible. I knocked over another book. I was going to read with you. (laughs) (laughs) For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and injustice of those who by their injustice suppress the truth. So there's a suppression of truth here. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God had shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made, so they are without excuse. Okay, so the problem here is that folks know the creation reveals something revelatory about creation. And what's it revealing? It's revealing something about God, his power and his nature. And this is being suppressed. Now, notice that this isn't a reference to Genesis 1 or Genesis 2. This isn't a reference to uh, the binary nature of, 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 uh, of, of human sexuality. It's not a suggestion about uh, anything having to do with humans at all. This is creation reveals something about God. Well, we got to ask, what, what would that mean? A Jew writes that creation reveals something about God. What, what would be our intertext? What, what would be the illusions? Where, where, where is this coming from? And the answer is it comes from the Psalms. Hmm. So if you start looking at the, the Psalms, and you specifically look at Psalms that are addressing how creation reveals something about God, what you find is that creation, Psalm 33, others, 98, I think maybe 146, uh, that creation reveals that the nature of God is that God is a God of loving kindness, faithfulness, or, or covenantal love, faithfulness, and justice. Hmm. So if you suppress that, then within a biblical worldview, you then embrace idolatry because you're not imaging God. And if, you, if you're not imaging God and you embrace idolatry, you will not image the nature of God, which is faithfulness, uh, justice, and, 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 uh, and loving kindness, covenantal faithfulness, covenantal yeah. love. So what is Paul attacking? Later on in the chapter, he's attacking economic practices, that whole list of vices that nobody seems to want to talk about because they're all concerned about homosexuality. They don't want to talk about our, their, their sin. They don't want to talk about somebody else's. This whole list of vices, you take a look at them. My goodness, they're mostly economic huh. in, in nature. 
So you engage, if you're not imaging God, you engage in an economics that is not just, not rooted in, faith, in covenantal faithfulness, and, 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 and not, not compassionate, etc. So then, what kind of sexuality is Paul attacking? He's t- attacking a sexuality that is not shaped by the image of God. A sexuality that is not rooted in loving kindness, is not just, is not faithful. Well, that sounds like the sexuality of the empire. That sounds like the sexuality of our lives t- today. So, again, he's not talking about faithful, monogamous, same-sex relationships, but rather, I think that Paul is offering us, as we interpret this now 2,000 years later, a model for what human sexuality is supposed to be like, regardless of the gender of, of the relation of, of, of the couple. Yeah. Sylvia, you leaned in. Did you have anything else? Oh, when Brian just said that looks a lot like our sexuality today, I just wanted to clarify. I think he meant the sexuality of our culture. <laughs> I assume Not that's what he personally meant. Personally, <laughs> our, our sexuality today. <laughs> Unless there's something he's keeping from me. <laughs> I, I assume not. I assume not. Oh, we're running out of time. Um, so there are two other things I wanted to talk about. I'm going to focus on one first, and then if we have time, I'll get to the other. Um, you brought up the president, and so soon now yesterday i mean we're going through an impeachment but we're also about to go through primaries a presidential election so many changes and so often and it's one of my favorite memes there's a picture of i think george washington and a bunch of other people that say guys i read romans 13 um i'm gonna apologize to george we can't do this like i sorry we're gonna <laughs> wars off and now that's badly paraphrased but that's effectively what it's saying which i love that meme because how funny is that? But how did we get from something like that meme to the way that we do Romans 13 now, where you'll see, you know, like, um, who is it? Uh, the Dallas Baptist, uh, what's his name? Jim Jeffries, he'll use Romans 13. Um, the past Department of Justice, uh, what's his name? I can't think of his name now. A lot of people will use Romans 13 as a, just do what I said. This is the president of the United States. Obviously, he's doing what needs to be done. He's got full authority to do it. And you're a horrible Christian if you are not falling in line. Okay, so we just uh, lost you. Oh, our, no. in, our internet <laughs> connection is unstable. You you just said Jim Jeffries and... Uh, uh, sure. Um, okay. So, yeah, so basically, how do we get from uh, the way that we look at Romans 13 now with pastors like Jim Jeffries or the past Department of Justice head? I can't think of his name now. I think he's from Mississippi or Alabama. I just can't think of his oh. name at the moment. Jeff Sessions? Yes, that's it. Jeff Sessions. Um, Jeff Sessions? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so the way that people will use Romans 13 is saying, and many pastors as well, of if you are not falling in line with the government, with the president, with your congressman, with your senator, with your governor, whatever it is, you are not a faithful Christian because that's not what Paul was telling the church in Rome to do. You really need to suck it up and just deal with it. Um, mm-hmm. To be fa- Like, how do we break that apart? Like, how do we, how do we wrestle with that? Well, two things. Um, First of all, we need to read Romans 13 in the context of Romans 12, right? Paul has just outlined in Romans 12, uh, an alternative polis, an alternative community that is supposed to be welcoming to the stranger, to walk with the oppressed, to forgive the enemy. In fact, to feed, give food and drink to the enemy, which is something not we're not practicing today very frequently. Nope. Um, and, and then he moves on to Romans 13. And it's it's like he's setting up a context, a, a contrast between the community you see in Romans 12 and, and the state. And he begins, he begins by damning them with faint praise. 
<laughs> to put it like that. You know, he says, be subject to the, the state, um, you know, for all authority is given by God. And right there, normally, if you were reading something that was in praise of the Roman Empire, it would have been an over-the-top, lavish uh document or statement that talked about all the virtues of the empire and how it had been given its um, its right to rule by the gods, by the gods Roma and the god uh, Zeus um, or uh, Jupiter, I guess in Rome, um, and, uh, and Mars. And all of this would have been rooted in this pantheon that is looking of the gods that's looking in favor on Rome, which has all these wonderful attributes and brings justice and brings peace. And Paul, on the other hand, isn't, isn't actually doing that. He's sort of saying, look, you got to keep your, you got to keep your eye on the state because they carry a sword. Um, and Nero prided himself on, on ruling with, with reason. So twice during his rule, uh, the doors, the doors of the temple, actually it's the temple of Janus, had been had been closed, demonstrating that there was throughout the empire. So he didn't consider himself as a ruler who ruled with force uh, and by means of, of the sword. So even saying that in this passage, Nero would have considered insulting. Hmm. Wait a minute, that's not why why you open. Um, so it's it's the equivalent of Paul saying to somebody, you know. See, see those guys on the playground? Do what they say, because if you don't, they're going to beat you up. <laughs> yeah. So just stay out of their way and realize that they're the guys who control the playground. Rather than see those people on the playground, they uh, see those guys over there, they're in charge of the games on the playground. And you want to go over there because you're going to have a good time with them. Right. right? That's, that's a very different different thing. So so he's he's telling the people uh, in Rome, keep your head down around the state. This is a state that rules with wrath and with violence. And then at the end of that passage, he says, you know, um, pay taxes to whom taxes are, are owed, uh, give fear to whom fear are owed, is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Kind of begging the question about whether any of these things are owed to the state, except maybe fear. He has said that earlier. Mm -hmm. But then he says, owe no one anything but to love one another. Hmm. So at the end, he kind of subverts that last sentence and gives the suggestion, ties it back in with Romans 12. Um, what do you actually owe the state in the end? You owe it your love. Because remember, I just said you love your enemies. Yeah. That's how we subvert the violence of the state, by meeting it with love. And, and love becomes the way that this community, you know, stand, the stance of this community against the violence and control of, of a violent empire. So that means, are we to love Donald Trump? Um, you know, Nancy Pelosi says she pay, pay, prays for Donald Trump every single day. Mm -hmm. There's a certain kind of love in, in that. Yeah. Um, and, and we are to extend that love to all the people that are being oppressed. Uh, and that are suffering under um, this particular pre presidency as well. Yeah. So, so here, here's here's the thing. How how did Romans thirteen ever get used uh, to uh, legitimate the empire? Well, Christianity became part of the empire. Right. Right. 
once once Christianity becomes part of the empire, then then the text needs to be reread and and becomes read in such a way that legitimates the empire. So if we're talking about disarming Romans, one of the things about Romans 13 is it has been used and used and used to arm imperial forces. It's been used as a, as, as a way to arm, arm the empire. And I just find that, that here is a place of, of not only blasphemy, but apostasy. Here is a place where a misreading of a text is used to legitimate Christians getting in bed and supporting what is clearly an unchristian regime. Yes. So when people ask me, usually in the States, what about Romans 13? Mm -hmm. I'm tempted to say, to hell with Romans 13, especially the Romans 13 used out of context of Romans 12, out of context of the whole Bible, out of context uh, of, of the prophetic tradition, out of context uh, of following one who was, in fact, crucified on an imperial cross. I don't know if you're familiar with this book or not. Um, Mark Charles and Sung Chan Ra wrote a book called Unsettling Truths. Like it goes all the way back to Pope mm -hmm. Gregory, George Gregory, uh, the papal bulls there about the doctrine of discovery. And then, yeah, um, that was an infuriating book to read. But yeah, that's, you know, hey, we did this thing. I need permission to kill people. How can we do yeah. this? Because I'm, yeah. I would sure. like what they have. I really like what they have. Yeah. And I talked about that, I think, with a, a handful of people. But yeah, I am, I'm of the mindset, and I've told this to many families that, uh, and friends that I'm pretty sure, you know, as an American, so many churches, they're like, yeah, we're Israel in this story, or we're this in this story, or we're that in this story, or we are Daniel in the lines. And I'm like, no, you're not. You're Babylon, you're Persia, you're mm -hmm. Rome. Because the Bible seems to be written to the poor, the oppressed, and the meek against the militaristic superpower of whatever the time period is, of whatever book you happen to be reading in the Bible. And for those that are keeping score, we are the military superpower. So yeah. stop it. Um, but people we, don't we like seen, to hear that. So Yeah, we have seen the enemy and it is us. Yeah. Yeah, so I want to end on this question. If... If Paul was here right now, like in literally in between the two of you, and he was to reframe anything in Romans, do you think that he would say anything different with what you've learned and studied and, and kind of taken from the text? Like if he was to rewrite it and instead of calling it Romans, we'll call it DCNs or we'll call it whatever the <laughs> capital of Canada is or Africa or London or whatever the capital is. Like if it was to be rewritten, do you think any of it would change or does it all pretty much hold the same power and authority based on the context and culture that we have today worldwide, not necessarily America or Canada wide? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, our, our book is, is an attempt to hear Paul speak into our context. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and so the answer to your question is, yes, we think that what Paul has to say in the first century of the Roman empire uh uh, will be and needs to be spoken into our own imperial context. Uh, whether we uh, have been totally faithful in our interpretation of Paul, um, uh, well, that's that that's up for discussion. Hmm. Uh, uh, perhaps not. Uh, perhaps if Paul was sitting here, he would say, "Are you guys serious? That, that's not what I meant at all." And and and, and we need to be open to that. What is imperative is that a faithful reading of Paul must be a reading that addresses Paul's revelatory power and prophetic power into our own context. Uh, 
So if you engage in a historical reading and you leave it at the historical reading, you leave it at exegesis, or even you leave it at systematic theology and theological form formulations, then you are engaging in an unfaithful reading of Paul. To be faithful to Paul is to hear him speak into our context. Whether we have done that as yeah. faithfully as we should, that's for the reader to discern. Yeah. And, and, and I think that Paul would, um, you know, it's a very interesting question, by the way, Seth, a very interesting question. I think a lot of what, what Paul is saying there about, you know, uh, the power of death and, and, you know, the dominion of death and the dominion of, of life. Um, a lot of that translates right into our own context, economically and politically and environmentally. Um, what doesn't translate so well is the thing you've just made, that the Christian community, the, the point you've just made, that the Christian community in Paul's time was a small oppressed community. And now Christianity, you know, is is the empire, mm -hmm. right? So I think actually the decline of the church is a good thing. Hmm. We, need, we need to become that marginalized people again before we can follow Jesus faithfully. But the other thing that I think has changed uh, a lot is that um, when Paul was writing um, you know, his own people, uh, you know, the Jews were also the scapegoat of the empire, and they have been throughout much of history. But what's happening now in Israel and Palestine is actually a situation where some some of Paul's people, and, and I know there are a lot of Jews who are against the occupation of Palestine, and that's important to say, um, because otherwise we fall into that other trap of scapegoating a whole people. Yeah. But but the, those who are powerful in that context are now oppressing the Palestinian people. So I think Paul would have something different to say mm. to his own people mm. if he were rewriting this letter mm. about them missing their own calling yeah. uh, to be faithful image bearers uh, on, on behalf of in, those who are being treated unjustly. So that would be a big change, mm. I think, that. That mm. Paul might might make, but who knows? Because he, I think he was a stubborn old coot too. <laughs> <laughs> Probably, uh, I think we all are, and most of the time, uh, with with whatever our uh, this is what I'm this is what I'm passionate about. We're all a bit stubborn, so yeah. Thank you again for coming on. Um, I'm going to end it. I think that's a good spot to end. Actually, that that is the question that I wanted to ask last. So it's going to have to be the end because I don't want to make them up after that. Um, but thank you so much <laughs> for coming on. I will say also, it has been extremely easy to interview two people. I've done it often, uh, but usually it's two different Skype connections with multiple. It's just a hot mess. It's really nice we're in the same room. It's really, really nice. But thank you for the book. It, it genuinely is challenging. There is, I, I recently found out, I think yesterday, I was Googling a few things and you've got like some study guides that go along with parts of the book. It doesn't seem like it's finished yet. Those are very, those are very helpful. But thank you again so much for coming on. Where would you point people to that as they want to grab the book? And I, I recommend grab the book. It's, it's worth the price of entry. Where would you send people? If, if you want to buy this book and you have a local bookstore, go there and ask them to order it. Okay. They can order it from the publisher. Um, if you are going to buy online, you want to go to Hearts and Minds Books, which is uh, a shop run by, run by Byron Borger in mm -hmm. uh, Philadelphia, no, um, uh, Harrisburg, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. um, Hearts and Minds Book. Uh, that would be great to support him by buying the book there if you're buying Perfect. online. Do not buy from it. Do not buy from Amazon. Don't do it. <laughs> Don't do it. Um, uh, yeah, I, that Hearts and Minds book, I feel like, doesn't he come out with every so, maybe quarterly, like a, here's like 10 books that you should really be 
like more, investing more, some time in. Yeah, more often than quarterly, and they are mammoth essays, uh, and uh, they are really worth the, oh, yeah. the time. Yeah. Delightful. Yeah. Delightful. Yeah, I've read a few of them, and I'm like, this is really good. This is re- it's really good. But um, thank you so much again for coming on. I've enjoyed it. Pleasure. Thank you, Seth. Huge thanks to the Salt of the Sound for their music in today's episode. Uh, they have been gracious enough, and I, I hope that you will go and listen to their music. Just hit play. Get them the listens. Um, just hit play. That's fantastic. Fantastic music. And um, they have been such a big help by allowing me to use the show in a more long-form basis while I work on the back catalog of transcripts. And so uh, that's a lot of work. Uh, so much work. And I'm very appreciative. So support the artists that allow this show to use their music. And Salt of the Sound is a big part of that. So I hope that each of you are having an amazing week. Truly hope that. Be blessed and I'll talk with you next week. Mm